you would, turn in your Bible to Lamentations chapter 5. Some of you are looking at the screen right now saying, I thought we did verse 16 last week. It's called pastoral prerogative. Let's stand today and read together all of Lamentations chapter 5. Jeremiah writing here under the inspiration of the one who brings trials into our lives that we might be refined and made more like Christ. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are, we are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Syria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning of the heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are coupled, excuse me, compelled to grind at the mill. And boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music. The joy of our hearts have ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us. And you remain exceedingly angry with us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence today thankful for these words and the reminder of what you are doing even in our own generation. Would you write these truths on our hearts eternally? In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Last week we saw that this passage is set in the context of Jeremiah. All of Jeremiah's lament here is set in his work Jeremiah chapter 32, we paid particular attention to in verses 18 and 20, where Jeremiah writes, You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed. We saw that our God is great in counsel and mighty indeed. And in the face of His great counsel and His mighty deeds, it would be right that we should stand in awe of His deeds and in reverence of all that we find in His Word. And the reason that we find such a great lament here is because... The people of God had done anything but stand in awe and reverence of Him. And so God carried out the very thing that He told them from of old that He would do. Verse 17 speaks to this reality. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His Word, which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Israel understood plainly why all of these things had happened in their lives, and it was because of what is recorded in verse 16. The the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. 
They experienced loss in the political realm, the per their personal lives, economically and spiritually because they had not lived in the righteousness that God had crowned them with, but they had walked away from His Word and lived according to the dictates of their own hearts and minds. And friends, this is the problem that has beset us in our own generation, and it's been the problem from the, the time of the fall forward. The reason that Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden is the same reason that Israel is being exiled here, and that is because our crown has fallen. Our righteousness is no more. And we have sin. Friends, the degree to which we see the heinousness of sin in our own lives will be the degree to which we glory in Christ. Do you know why the church doesn't worship rightly in our generation? Because it does not see sin in all of its heinousness. Because we take lightly the effects of the fall. And so, in, in turn, we think lightly of the redemptive work of Christ. It, it's interesting, again, how, how verse 16 puts it here. The crown is falling. Our, our crowning glory as image bearers in the garden. Our, our crown was the righteousness that God placed upon us. As we bore His image, he crowned us with an inclination to worship rightly, to think rightly, to feel rightly, to do rightly. But we lost all of that at the fall. If you remember what we talked about last week, uh, and Kuiper's not the only one that deals with it, but Abraham Kuiper uh, reminds us that the great Roman Catholic polemicist Bellarmine, who lived right about uh, the, the early uh, turn of the 20th century, argued that, and this isn't necessarily, again, uh, unique to Bellarmine, it's Catholic thought, but, but, but he reminds us that, that, that Catholic doctrine teaches us that material uh, things are bad, and ultimately at the time that God created the universe, there was this force that imposed upon God that, that he must create man, but uh, material, and so in that creation there had to have been what they call a seed to sin. And to fix this remedy, God added to his creation uh, this original righteousness. And so Rome goes on to say that our desire only becomes sin when we consent to it. That God created us with a seed to sin, so the desires of our heart for sin are not sins in and of themselves. They only become sins when we take them a step further and we consent in that direction. And I reminded you that this is where Protestants, the better part of 500 years, and I would just argue beyond the church historical argument of, of Protestant faith, the Bible would disagree with that position. You don't find the idea that God was constrained to create man with a seed to sin and then somehow glossed over it. And so here, uh, I think, helpfully, Kuiper reminds us that we deny that the contrast between flesh and spirit, between soul and body, exists by nature. We deny that in this contrast, a power stood opposed to God that prevented Him from creating human nature other than with defect. We deny that desire would be defect and not sin. Let me say that one one more time. We deny that desire would be defect and not sin. We maintain the nature of sin is spiritual and not fleshly or material. And then he goes on to say, we confess that God created human nature in noble perfection without any defect and that our, our present misery does not consist in the fact that we have lost... Let me start over. We confess that God created human nature in noble perfection without any defect and that our present misery does not consist in the fact that we have lost something that was added to our nature, but that our nature itself is corrupted. 
robbed of its original excellence, and depraved. Our nature was not created, ultimately, Bellarmine argues, independent but dependent upon God that we can't go for a single second continuing. So get this in, in, in this Protestant understanding, and I think it's right. In the garden, we are created in righteousness, not with a, a glossing over of righteousness, but genuine righteousness in such a way that we can honor and glorify God and worship Him truly. But that doesn't mean that we can do that apart from Him. We are still utterly dependent upon Him to have in ourselves righteousness and holiness. We weren't created to be dependent from God, but to be dependent upon Him and to continue with Him in fellowship and in union, praising Him for what He had done throughout all of creation. I realized all of that's pretty weighty, isn't it? Doesn't that make your brain just go, okay, good, I'm not alone. I realized that I rushed through that uh, certainly quickly, and there's a potential that we lost uh, clarity because of that. Last week was really intended to show that our crown has fallen, that we lack righteousness in our actions, in our thoughts, and our desire, that we are utterly fallen in our nature. That the problem that persists today, the reason why Fox News has a reason to report all of the awful happenings that have befallen humanity, is not necessarily just because of the action, but because our nature is wretched and depraved. And everything that happens in this life flows out of that. And there was one aspect that I think we need to come back to and touch upon, and that is the idea of temptation and whether or not temptation in and of itself is sinful. I think, in fact, I used the expressed phrase, temptation is sin. And I would defend that depending on what we understand temptation to be. There needs to be clarity of what we mean by temptation. So the question that we have to come to first, if we're going to ask that question, answer that question of, of is temptation in and of itself sinful? Well, I think we have to understand how God tempts us and why. How does He tempt us and how doesn't He tempt us? And we can come to a passage like James chapter 1. And, and I want to be clear this morning. I, I intended to finish Lamentations, but I had a couple of questions and then conversations with my wife uh, that clarified for me that I hadn't been clear. And friends, one of the things in our life together that's so important is that we walk away from a text with clarity. So if I haven't been clear, I'm willing to own that and to come back and to deal with that. And so I think we need to hear, is temptation today, is the question, is it sin? And to answer that, let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 12. give you a few seconds to get there. Sarah, can I borrow your water today? That's so kind of you. It's a very pink water bottle you have that belongs to you, my dear wife, not me. For everybody to be clear. James chapter 1. Starting in verse 12, James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin." And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, I think there's a paradox or a potential contradiction if we misunderstand these words. The, the words trial and temptation in the original language are very closely related here. And in, in verse 12, he says that, no, that, that the one endures trial will receive the crown of life. 
And in verse 13, he says uh, that, we, that, that God tempts no one. And, and so the question then is, does God tempt men? Does he in any way tempt humanity? And, and the answer to that is yes, but with a distinction. And, and let me see if I can draw it out for you. In verse 12, we see this pronouncement that the one who remains steadfast under trial is blessed. For when he has stood the test, that trial, that temptation, periosmos is the word, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And and here's what we understand as we back up from James' writing and we look at the whole of Scripture is that God is sovereign over every trial, every outward temptation that comes into our lives. Think about the book of Job and the reality that God sent cosmological suffering into his life or temptation that he would prove his own goodness and that ultimately Job would be tried and tested. Or think about Joseph and as he concludes his time of being sold into slavery and, and all of the happenings of years of the betrayal and the outfall of those sins against him, I think that's a, a trial, a temptation. And Joseph concludes by saying, God meant it for e- or you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Think about the different trials that Paul talks about or the different temptations in his own life. Uh, that he experienced throughout his ministry. And we know that, that Paul, above all, would argue that God is ultimately the one working everything in our lives for his glory and for our good. So does God bring temptation into our lives? And the answer is yes, in an outward circumstantial way. He is never the author of evil. He is never responsible uh, in, in that sense of adding pressure outwardly even, I think, that would, would cause this. And the, the problem comes in verse 13 uh, where James is emphatic, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. And I think that the difference is that ultimately what is talked about in verse 12 is the outward trying, testing, tempting, if you will, of our faith. And part of the problem here is the English language and the original language and glosses of words and trying to be clear with those, right? So we use the word temptation, I think, often as that outward went through this this tempting in my life. I went through the, the outward temptation of a particular trial or circumstance, but in verse 13, we are told explicitly that God doesn't tempt. And the difference is that one comes from outside in the circumstance, the other one is inward. God is certainly sovereign over all of our trials, and He brings the trials to test His children, but He never adds to the inner problem of man. He never adds to our depravity, our wretchedness, our desire for sin. He doesn't tempt inwardly in that way. And maybe we can think about it, and this is why the picture is on the screen behind me. Think about it in terms of a well and a bucket used to draw the water out. The bucket is the circumstance, and it is the outward instrument of God in our temptation, in our being tried. And that bucket, as it is lowered down into the well, it draws out what is already there. There is inside of each one of us a well from which God reveals who we really are. We are tempted outwardly then by God in His providence. And again, the word here, periosmos, a pressure-filled situation. Outward trials are applied to our lives by the sovereign hand of God for what purpose other than this? To reveal what is inside of us. If you throw a bucket into a well and you bring it back out and something blinks and looks back at you, you're probably not going to drink out of that bucket. Now some of us that grew up in rural areas might give it a shot. But we look into that water and we go, oh, something is off here. And so what God is doing in our trials, in our outward temptations, is He is 
allowing those pressures to bear in our lives that we would see what comes out of us. And friends, what I would contend with you this morning is that what comes out of us so often is sin. Our wells have all been poisoned. Maybe to illustrate this point further, look at, turn in in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You'll remember this passage well. Here Paul tells us that no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And we have here again an inward and an outward, I think, in just this one verse. The inward is the reality that no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. Why is there no temptation which is not common? It's because we all share a common ancestry in Adam, and in Adam we all sin. And because of that reality, we all have a similar bent in our depravity towards temptation. And and what God has been up to. When we look at Scripture and we see God tempting Job and we see God dealing with Joseph and we see God dealing with Paul, we see the reality of the human constitution and God, what He does in our lives is He reveals to us how helpless and how poisoned we are. He reveals to us the sinfulness of sin. And how when the, the... The outward circumstances of life don't go our way. Often there is an inward trial as well. We also see in this passage, 1 Corinthians 10.13, the outward. God is faithful and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God will not allow a trial outwardly that is the actual reason for sin. He always provides a way of escape. The issue in our lives is that we don't often take the way of escape. So somebody might also come as we're reasoning through, are our desires ultimately, are our temptations sinful? And they might say, what about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, which reads, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. Martin Lloyd-Jones here, and I think rightly, speaks of, have you ever experienced in your life that you're just going along throughout your day and all of a sudden you have an awful, overwhelming thought? Maybe sinful potential in in nature. Um, And and you don't know where that uh, came from. Lloyd-Jones would encourage us, that that is a satanic device of some sort. But this passage doesn't tell us that, that ultimately the effect of those flaming darts outwardly hitting the inward part of the man, that it doesn't reveal in our lives a predisposition to sin. Ultimately, I don't think that this passage is about vindicating us from the sinfulness and wretchedness of our heart as much as it is about the the means by which we extinguish the thoughts. The the, the reality or the thought, when, when, when Paul writes that we can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, Uh, is that armies would light an arrow on fire and let's say they shoot a volley of arrows at the wooden wall behind me. That wall in and of itself is the fuel which will burn because it has been shot with a flaming uh, arrow. Now I might go around and extinguish all of those darts, all of those arrows, but when I pull them off, what's going to be left on the wall behind me? You're going to see a bunch of scorch marks, right? You're going to see the effect that the wood started to burn. And my, my, what I would contend with you this morning out of this passage is that Paul is giving us help here knowing that by faith we need to extinguish those darts. When those thoughts come, we must immediately turn to Christ and it is only by faith that we can extinguish those things that they don't burn in our minds. But the reality of those flaming darts being thrown in our direction is that Satan knows that there is a depraved nature in each one of us that left untouched by the grace of God will burn. That we 
as we have those thoughts, that there is a place, let's think of it in this zoo, in terms of birds, uh, that, that our minds are a place where sin can come and roost. Like we can, we can meditate on and we can think through those particular uh, things that Satan throws in our path because we are already bent with a disposition towards depravity. So when Satan hurls something at us, the issue is that there is something in us that is already predisposed to receive what He has sent our way. We, we must see that our lives are marred by sin. In our thoughts, in our desires, in our actions, we are sinners to the core. It's, it's not by better thoughts that we are saved. It's not by cleaning up our desires or by moderating our actions. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. You see, the whole purpose, so, so here, God doesn't tempt us in a way that He adds to our inward depravity. Does that make sense? What, what God does in our temptation is He allows often Satan outside secondary means into our lives which reveal what is already in us. Well, we sing uh, here, have a couple of times recently, the hymn by John Newton, I ask the Lord that I might grow. And here I think we have a, a brilliant depiction of what temptations reveal in our lives. As the concluding verse of that song reads this, These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that you would find your all in me. What God is doing in our lives is He sends temptation our way is he is revealing that in us there is something amiss and we can only be healed not through our efforts but only by the grace of almighty god it's like a child who wants to impress his parents we we go about trying to i remember i don't know if i've shared this story with you but when i was a young man and when i say young probably six years old my mother loved candles and so she fell asleep one day and I thought to myself in my six-year-old brain, you know what my mom would really like? She would love for me to get out all of her fancy candles and line them up around the living room and light them all on fire. She woke up and I got my hide tanned. She was not pleased that I had burned all of these expensive candles. And, and I think part of what we do in our own Christian life is at times we try to moderate things that God would be pleased with us when what we really need to understand is that God is only pleased with us because we are in Christ. It is only in Christ that we find love and the love and, and favor of the Father. It is only through God's redemptive works in His Son that we can escape the effects of sin. So does God produce ultimately temptation in us? The answer is no. But does He allow temptation outwardly? And the answer is yes. Which brings us to this question. What about our desires? Are desires in and of themselves sinful? And the answer is, I think, well, yes and no. No, in the sense that desires can be good. We have a, an innate desire to learn. I think that God created us as cogitating creatures to think and to reason and, and to learn. Uh, we have a desire to grow. We have a desire to, often to get married. We have desires for food. We have desires for relationships with just friends. We have a desire to serve the Lord. And those desires can be good things. But the problem is this. Even in our best desires, to one degree or another, there often is still the remaining manifestation of the fall in sin. We continue to live even if, as we seek marriage, which is a good thing and a good desire. We move in that direction often in a sinful way. Or, or I've seen this many, many times in church ministry. Someone has a desire to do ministry. And they get so blinded that, that my desire to do ministry is so important that, that whatever it takes, I'm going to, to move in that direction. And 
they inadvertently reveal that their desire is not wholly pure but often self-centered by the way in which they go about seeking a position from which they can minister. So we, desires can be good things. The problem is, I would argue that the only absolute pure desires were in the Garden of Eden. Everything beyond that has been tainted, marred by sin. And this is why Paul tells the church at Colossae in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, to put evil desires to death. Put to death, therefore, he writes, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You see, there's evil desires, things that are tainted with sin, and we being created with desire is not a bad thing, but it, the problem is, is that all of those desires now have a, an inward curvature for pride and self. In the fall, all of our desires are marred, which is what we find, and this is what we dealt with last week. Romans chapter 1 tells us about how disordered our desires are. Verses 24 and 25 of Romans chapter 1. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their, lust could be translated desire, of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed and forever Amen. The issue of sin is an issue of worship, not only in our actions, but in our hearts. The, the question of worship is simply this. What do you desire? We can come in and your emotions can be stirred. You, you can enjoy the, the, the music. You could agree that a sermon is good on a particular Sunday. You could, in your flesh, be pleased by what happens in this room. But if your desires, your affections are not molded more for, to, in the direction of the Lord, then ultimately we have not worshipped the true and living God. We have got to see the reality that sin is when we even take a good thing like like worship, and we aim it not at the glory of God, but at ourselves and our own ends. And I think that I can prove it just in one commandment <clears throat> here. I know we're skating through a lot of stuff, but in one commandment that desires in and of themselves, if they are inordinately uh, ordered, are sinful. Look at Exodus chapter 20, the 10th commandment. And think about whether this is an inward thing in our desires or an outward thing in our actions. You shall not covet your neighbor's... Chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You're not to covet. You're not to want what God has blessed someone else with. And Jesus, going further from this, pointed out that not only is the outward manifestation of adultery and murder a problem, but also that the sins that get us there, the anger and the lust that drive in the direction of adultery and murder, are the problem of the human life. And Jesus, throughout His teaching, aims back that God is concerned with the heart and that what is really the problem for humanity is not our outward actions, but our inward desires, what it is that drives us, all of what we think and what we feel. And someone's going to come and say, but what about James? And I think this is a good and healthy question. Look at verses 14 and 15 in James chapter 1. We'll finish this out. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, this is the verse that the Roman Catholic Church uses to prove their point. They make the assertion that desire brings forth sin, therefore we can't call desire in and of itself sin. Our thoughts, uh, our inward life is not sin because we have not acted on it. One thing cannot be both cause and effect. That would be their argument. Because this verse clearly says 
that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, then sin is not, the desire is not sin. One thing can't be both cause and effect. John Trumbull argues, I think, adequately here against that position. Again, desires wrongly ordered are sinful, even for a moment. He says, to this be it answered, that one thing may be cause and effect also, but not cause and effect in the one uh, thing may be cause of sin and yet sin, for one sin is often the cause of another. Desire, therefore, is not only the cause of sin, but sin itself, yet not the same sin that it has caused. Desire conceives and brings forth sin, that is, an actual sin, a sin done indeed, seen of others, manifestly apparently in view. Such a sin is, is not desire. Desire is conceived evil, an inward consenting to evil, and therefore a sin. And I would argue that what we see in James chapter 1, verse 15, the argument that James is giving to us is a continuum of the human problem. He's not giving vindication for our desires. What he is pointing to is that our desires conceive our actions, and our actions go further in reaping the fruit of death. All of these things are ultimately impacted by the fall. Our desires have been impacted by the fall, therefore are often sinful. Our actions, outward sins, are driven by our desires, and ultimately we reap the just penalty for all that we have done in, the, uh, in, in death. So, so here there is this constant outworking of what sin is. Our nature is corrupt through and through. We are not as bad as we could be, but our finest works, beloved, we have to remember are stained with sins. Sin. So our desires must be seen often for what they are. Now, God allows these outward temptations Again, to reveal in us our sinful desires. Often we can go about life and we're, we're, we're not concerned with what's going in, in on in our heart. And so we would miss the reality of our disordered hearts and lives. But God continually presses in that we would see those things coming out of us. Why? Is it so that we would despair? No, the answer is so that we would rejoice in Him. When we come to, to moments in our life where there's an outward circumstance that we would call a temptation, and we don't give way to that temptation, we must rejoice that God in His grace has given us the great victory. But we have to know that our God is not willing to stop there. God, God doesn't just go, I'm so glad that you didn't act on that temptation. He also wants to eradicate in your heart even the smallest desire to move in the direction of that temptation. God's not, the cross of Christ didn't just accomplish a victory over our actions, He accomplished a victory over who we are at the basis of our nature. So, again, if we think of temptation in an understanding outwardly, that outward temptation, the outward circumstance, isn't necessarily the sin, but most often it reveals in us and is the purpose of God to reveal in us a disordered desire, a disordered heart that we might run to Him. I, I want you to see, ultimately, the one that I think James is talking about in a final terminal sense in James chapter 1, the one that he says, that the, the man who remains steadfast under trial. There was only one such man. Turn to, to Luke chapter 4. So outward trial, the providence of the Lord, not necessarily the sin. The sin comes when that pressure, that periosmos, presses into us. And even if we don't react, even if the action doesn't come out of our lives, God is revealing to us something in our lives. This has happened, in my, just to, to summarize before we move on. 
I, I think I used this illustration last week, so I'll do it again. Uh, my wife, if she bakes something and puts it on the table and says, do not touch that, that is an outward circumstance that reveals in me a desire that when she's not looking, I want to eat the whole stinking thing and leave a note that says, thank you, honey. That There is in me a disordered, really, I mean, even in that small circumstance, it would be totally reasonable that if my my wife put in all of this effort to do this, to to make this cake and she's going to take it somewhere else, else, that I would respect her desire and not go scarf down the cake. Uh, so even inside of my heart, not acting on that is a propensity uh, to show that I am a sinful individual, that at the level of my nature, I have sin. But here let's move on to the one who has remained steadfast under every trial. Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan And was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority. And their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You will not put the Lord your God to a test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, when we look at this, we see the reality that the outward trials in and of themselves are not sin. But friends, I want us to see something better from this text other than just the outward temptation can't be considered a sin of the individual. I want you to see in this text the reality That God is allowing Satan, the Father, is allowing Satan to do to His Son the very thing that He does in our lives of pressing into us. But there is a grand distinction that is revealed in this passage. And it is this. That nothing that Satan did in, in Christ's direction had any effect whatsoever. The fiery darts of Satan in Jesus' direction didn't have anywhere to land. It would be like flaming darts being shot at a freight train. They just bounced off, every one of them. There was not an evil thought that he experienced. There was not a temptation inwardly that he would even consider giving over the glory of the Father for the kingdoms of the earth. There was not a moment... And you get into here the impeccability of Christ and and whether Christ is able to sin or whether He is able not to sin. And there's a theological argument there that will make you go cross-eyed. We won't go down that path this morning. But, But ultimately what we have to see is that Jesus in His desires was perfect. And what is being proven so early on in Luke chapter 4 is that Luke, excuse me, that Jesus is not like you and I. He's not sold under sin. He is not in the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam, the true Messiah, the one that can set us free from sin because even in His inward parts, in His affections, in His desire, in the recesses of His humanity, you could not find an iota of sin. That's what Luke chapter 4 is revealing. That's what the temptation here is going about to prove. Is the outward act of temptation as God applies pressure sinful? No, but we are sinful in all of our responses to one degree or another. 
what we find is that in taking in, in, in light of Lamentations chapter 5, verse 16, our crown, our righteousness of humanity has fallen and we have sinned. But Christ, His crown never wavered. His righteousness stood the test of everything that Satan could throw at Him. Satan here in this, in this narrative throws down political and personal um, and economic, all kinds, everything that He would throw at us in a temptation, He throws at Jesus, and Jesus does not move. And this tells us something glorious about the world to come. And this is why I believe so adamantly that sinful desires, even if they're just fleeting, even if it's just for a second, when we experience um, momentarily a flash of an inordinate thought, I believe that in and of itself is sin for this reality. And I think it's revealed in Jesus and we will experience it in heaven. And it's this, that if we believe that desires aimed at sin are not sin, we undermine again the gift of what heaven is. If desires and temptations are not sinful in their finding a home in us, that, that as the flaming darts hit us, that they have a place to, to, to manifest themselves even for a moment, then we could expect to go on for every ounce of eternity being dogged by temptations. We could expect standing before the throne of glory and constantly having inordinate thoughts. Constantly being pulled away from the glory of God. Constantly, even for a second, of thinking something that was sinful, prideful, and selfish. But the glorious news of heaven, beloved, is that when we are there, just as Christ did not buckle for a second, when we stand before the throne, our thoughts, our desires, our actions will all follow His glory. They will all be attuned to worshiping nothing in creation but only our Creator. We will no longer experience in, the, in that moment the slightest tinge of temptation. Think about that. Think about the glory of that. That there will not be a day that I have an even a momentary lapse into thinking about doing something or thinking something that is contrary to the glory of God. That will not exist. And that is what ultimately Christ accomplished. Friends, that's why when we sing with, with William
that our crowning righteousness is no more. And so we follow the world in so many areas of our lives. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. But friends, as we look to Jesus, we need to remember this reality in light of our fallen state. We're not fallen because we've done one or two things bad. We're fallen when we come into this world completely screaming and gurgling. Danny, in all of your cute little gurgling up there, is this sinful wretch in need of the grace of God. And we do not need to teach that child to clean up his outward actions and feel good about it. Or even to refrain from, from, from the momentary thoughts. All those, those are good things to do. Secondarily to this, we need to teach Danny and every person in this room to look to Jesus. To remember that we are not justified before the living God because our desires are in order. Rather, we are justified by faith, and it is a faith that will inevitably order all of our desires in due time. God will not, will not stop short of restoring the crown that has fallen from us. I want you to think about what Paul says in light of what Jeremiah has written. Our crown has fallen. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Our righteousness is no more. We are utterly depraved people in need of the grace of God. And so we sin daily in our thoughts, in our desires, and in our actions. Listen to what Paul says about what is coming to you and I, and I'll be done. He writes simply. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all of those who love his appearing. Beloved, as we leave this place today, be heartened in the reality that God has not left you, but is press into you, temptations outwardly to reveal the inward desires that are so disordered, and why? So that when you stand before His throne and you no longer feel the well of those disordered desires, your heart will worship gratefully for eternity. You pray with me. Father God, we come to your presence today so thankful for your gospel, so thankful for what it means to Saved to sin no more. Not in our thoughts, not in our desires, not in our actions. But we will stand before your throne according to this promise, crowned with righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes only through Christ. So, Father, today I pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth because of the great thing that you have done in giving us a way of escape from the, from the desires and the deceitfulness of this world. Father, if there's one here today that doesn't that's never truly repented of their sin. They never turn from desiring the world to desiring you, that you would reveal yourself to them, regenerate their heart, and lead them to the Christ. They would cry out in repentance and faith for salvation. Father, for those of us who are in Christ today, might we worship you from the depths of our being, knowing that you can relieve us not only from our actions,